Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is March 23rd, 2021, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, As we do every week, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? Good to be here, Neil. Yeah, it is. It is good to be here. And and, uh, (laughs) particularly in a new year, everything is kind of getting a little cheerier, a little warmer. Um, I do want to remind everyone up front, as I always do, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, find out about it. Uh, among the things, you will be able to get our uh, daily newswire, uh, watch my shows on COVID-19, special interviews, and, and occasionally, yes, we do black books on special topics. I think we have a few of those coming up, in fact. So let's get into today's podcast I always like to talk about our very ambitious agenda. I, I hope actually we pared it back a little bit today so we, we're not as overwhelmed as usual. Things we want to talk about are, you know, we'll start with our usual markets and indicators. Lately, we've been doing Biden's policy agenda. Today, we will I'll look at something that's been in the news a lot. That's uh, immigration. And that's kind of forcing itself to the news, although I think even the Biden administration probably does not want it to be in the news at the moment, but it is in the news. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to go around the world. I think, uh, uh, Christian, you're going to talk a little bit about this very interesting meeting with uh, China's leaders and Team Biden in Alaska. Uh, That let off some fireworks, and that's interesting. We'll move from there to Taiwan across the you know, I don't know, what is that, across about 70 miles or, or, or less, maybe. Uh, and we will look at a very interesting development there. Interesting topic we're going to talk about on Russia having to do with commercial surrogacy. This is, you know, hiring women to grow another uh, couple's baby in utero. And uh, some very interesting news about changing policies there. And finally, we'll talk about Recep Erdogan. This is what's happening in Turkey. He has a problem with his central bankers. <laughs> he keeps firing them. <laughs> and he fired one last weekend, and the markets did not take it very well. So we're, we're going to talk about that. We have two uh, newswire items to kind of go over. Uh, one is more evidence confirming the 2020 birth decline in the United States. Uh, And we're probably beginning to get a little bit better idea about what it's going to be in 2020 and 2021. You know, now that COVID kind of levels off, we're we're finally beginning to get months that really reflect, you know, post-COVID pregnancy behavior, frankly. And then in um, uh, we're going to do a story on uh, drug overdose deaths in 2020. Uh, Death hit a record high. This is really kind of sad news. It's unfortunate news. It's a reversal backwards in the in the wrong direction of something we thought that was actually improving, you know, back in late 
2018. So, so that's it. That's what we got on our plate. So I guess we can jump right in. Maybe we will start with uh, markets. All right, Neil. Well, markets were slightly down since our last podcast, which was six trading days ago. The S&P 500 is down 1.5% and the global Dow is down 1.3%. Today, the VIX closed at 20.03. I will say yesterday it did actually close in the 18 range, so it has been trending a little lower than usual. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Really? uh, Where did it close today, the VIX? Uh, 20.03. So it came up a little bit. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, we're we're beginning to see sort of a um, kind of the the VIX premium reverse itself here, sort of staying low, even though the the markets are a little bit more turbulent. Okay, uh, uh, what else? What else do we see? I'll go to indicators, which we don't have too much news at, but I'll start with one of the Fed's regional, uh, the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index. Now, the consensus for this for March was that it was going to come in at twenty three. Anything above zero is growth, but it came in at 51.8, just blew the expectations out of the water. This is its highest reading in almost 50 years. Everything rose, general activity, new orders, shipments, employment, future sentiment. And this was a shocker to many people, but it could be good news for going forward. Yeah, these uh, these these regional Fed indicators are notoriously volatile i think to say the least uh, but i believe that uh, if it's any indicator i mean if you if you're really counting one sigma two sigma bands right uh right. this is the highest since i think it was almost that high in the early reagan era i mean the the philadelphia right. uh, the philadelphia feds uh, regional kind of diffusion index goes back a long ways actually and i believe that the last time it was higher than this was in 1973, right back when uh, Richard Nixon was president, and we weren't yet. I think it was uh, sometime in the summer before the uh, OPEC embargo. We weren't quite into full fledged inflation. It was it was a good time uh, for America, and it was only slight. It was one month slightly higher. So this is the biggest record, except one in a yeah. in a monthly record that goes back. You know what? Uh, well. 50 years. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, what else? Next little piece of news, and I'll end it with this, was just the new home sales month over month for February was shockingly down, minus 18.2%. But as I did a little bit more digging on the numbers, Neil, I found that this NAH indicator actually has the largest margin of error of almost any of the U.S. indicators. I think it was for this reading, plus or minus 14%. So it probably wasn't as bad as it was saying, or it could have been worse, but it's hard to tell. Yeah, it could have been worse. Look, we had a, um, a cold right. winter, right? Uh, you don't want to sell your home. I mean, I don't know, back back in that month, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go out of my house, much less sell my house. I think about um, Texas, you know, not usually as cold, and they had some big storms. Well, they they did, and they're responsible for a lot of um, for a lot of home turnover. Uh, the uh, but still, I mean, single family homes remain high. And just you know, going back to the sort of basic uh, data on uh, starts, you know, single family homes remain very hot, and uh, multifamily remain pretty weak. And I think you can count on that going forward. There is the impact of, I think you had, you had mentioned uh, higher raw material prices, pushing up prices Correct. for new homes. 
as well as um, obviously mortgage rates are going up. So there's all of that. Um, okay, well, let's move on. Uh, you know, my one piece uh, item on the agenda here is uh, we're kind of going through, I think the last two podcasts we've been talking about various um, broad policy areas for the Biden administration. And uh, today I really wanted to talk a little bit about immigration. And that's really been forced on the administration, not at a time of its choosing, certainly by the enormous flux in border crossings. Um, Back in the Obama era, uh, which had a pretty good record of deportation, as I recall, 1,000 attempted border crossings a day was considered uh, a crisis. You know, that was considered a lot. Today, it's 6,000 a day. So Biden is scrambling, and you see these areas uh, in Texas and Arizona really kind of losing it. Uh, A lot of the volunteer outfits to take care of uh, immigrants uh, don't have many volunteers because of COVID-19. The local sort of public services are obviously they're constrained as well uh, for some of the same reasons. Uh, and you have um, you have just a lot of people out there, you know, in the in the bush, in the desert uh, and uh, border controls, you know, trying to round them up. Here you have Biden. He still has no uh, secretary of, uh, of Homeland Security uh, confirmed yet, uh, nor any head of the Customs and Border Control. So he's he's wondering how to handle this. And I, this this is at the end of a, a long period of uh, transition, right? I think if you look back over the past 10 years, you've seen a real uh, change in, in the type of immigration we're seeing across the southern border. And and by the way, I mean, 6,000 a day, that's an enormous number. I mean, that's that's over a half half a million in, in three months, in one quarter. And most of these people... Uh, who are found, I mean, many of them are returned right away, as we're going to, you know, I'm going to mention in just a second. Uh, but a lot of them, uh, particularly, you know, children are are kept, and many of them aren't found. And the ones that are kept and put in the general population, that is to say released, you know, most of them never show up. So, you know, maybe 30% of them are then later located. So a lot of these people will become, you know, kind of, new residents, other than legal residents, right? But 6,000 a day, that's, you know, that's a lot. So when you're, when you're talking about half a million in one quarter, <laughs> that's a big, that's a big number to affect overall population in the United States, right? I mean, uh, just, I'm always used to talking about legal immigration and sort of net immigration in America recently has been about 1 million. Uh, but you can see that a magnitude of that really changes things. So what is the big transition? Uh, I think the first is a lot more from Central America and uh, fewer from Mexico. Uh, the second shift is more children and young families, uh, young families of small children rather than young adults, which, again, used to be the norm. Uh, you know, young adults uh, somewhere between you know, being teenagers and late 20s often single or maybe just married without kids. And the third is a lot more attempting to enter as humanitarian refugees. So what's driving it? Some of it is driven by humanitarian distress, although I must say most uh, do not qualify as refugees. I mean, to qualify as a refugee, you need to actually be persecuted on the basis of your 
you know, political beliefs or religion or, you know, something particular about you, this is not what's going wrong. Many of these people are coming from the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. The problem there is not political persecution. The problem is bad governance. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's poverty. Uh, You know, I'm particularly thinking of Honduras. So, you know, it's not really refugee status as we think about it. It's the problem with a lot of the world, uh, right? They're, they, the difference is these people can, you know, migrate by land. Many of them, in fact, go in these big caravans directly from Honduras, you know, all the way up through, um, you know, Belize or, or Guatemala, up through Mexico to the border up near Tijuana, for example. Some of it is driven by uh, economic stress, clearly made worse by covid Probably that that pressure will pick up as the U.S. economy picks up, particularly if the U.S. economy picks up faster than uh, Central America's. I think you'd have to say, though, that most of this is driven uh, simply by the expectation that borders will not be enforced uh, or that enforcement will be overwhelmed. And and what is well known is that the, you know, the gangs, the coyotes, they, they make a lot of money uh, off taking people. And they are broadly advertising the fact that, you know, a new, new administration's coming in. It, it's, you know, sort of open borders, or at least they imply. Now, I, I realize that Joe Biden has never said anything uh, like open borders. He says he promises to enforce the law. But I think it's also fair to say that the Democratic political brand in 2020 was not big on enforcement. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched the debates. I did, believe it or not. I forced myself. I'm a good soldier. I, I watched every single one of those primary debates. And I did. Whenever immigration came up, it all had to do with uh, the injustice of how we enforce the laws. No one ever talked about enforcing. And I think the impression of open borders, although actually rarely said as such, was uh, was you know, certainly out there. Uh, and I think for a reason. Um, and I think it is one of those things that probably did not help Democrats uh, during the elections. And I think it also explains some of the composition, a large share of the uh, crossing the border of children, because it is known that children cannot be returned, right? Uh, they are kept inside the United States. Now, interestingly, a lot of the enforcement has now changed. Uh, much of the current enforcement, which changed, you know, earlier in 2020, was through this thing called Title 42, which is what President Donald Trump sort of, um, you know, gave, just created through executive order. It's in there in the law that during a health emergency, you have the right to expel immigrants right away. This is not by deportation, but it's as though they never entered. So (laughs) you get to bypass all the legal niceties, right? I'm I'm not deporting you. You're just never here, right? (laughs) So you just truck people back across the border. It was used heavily by Trump. It was reviled by Democrats. The uh, Democrats have tried to reverse it in court. The courts have affirmed it. The courts have said that, uh, yes, the president has the power to do it. Now, Biden is relying heavily on Title 42. And (laughs) I think he's thanking his stars that the courts have reaffirmed it, right? Because it's the only way that he can control the situation right now. So, so here you have a, a, a Biden administration, which, you know, tries to be, you know, moderate, is pretty centrist. I think they position themselves better on immigration than the other Democratic candidates. They certainly always claim that they did want to continue and to enforce the rules. But I, I wanted to 
use this as a way to kind of segue into something that maybe I should have started with, but that is, what is the Biden position with regard to immigration reform, right? In other words, had this not flared up, what would he now be talking about, right? And, uh, you know, maybe you could, you know, you've been looking a little bit into this and and maybe you could say a few words about it and then we can kind of talk about the the history of this. But uh, I remember, you know, the Gang of Eight back in 2013, which had that had that compromise plan, which never went through. And I guess I guess what Biden wants is just something similar to um, what was alive in the Senate when he was uh, when he was vice president under Obama. Well, I'll just say, you know, generally what Biden is talking about is that For the people who are in the U.S. and are undocumented, they'll have to pay taxes and they'll have to pass a background check. But after that, they can live and work in the U.S. for five years. They would then have to apply for a green card. And three years after that, they would be eligible to apply for U.S. citizenship. So the whole process would take eight years. On the other hand, they they get a green card after five years. But in a sense, they they already have a green card because... I mean, they right, they're to not getting harassed by I mean, so I mean, fine too. Right, okay, okay. All right, I got it. I got it. And then and then another policy would apply to newcomers and there'd be all this um you know, automatic enforcement and checking employers and you know, particularly the right. employer checks, right? And doing all that stuff. Exactly. Stricter borders. I think one of the, the, the real problems with the whole Trump plan, of course, is that if you really want to enforce border control, you have to enforce it against employers. And I and I think that one of the hypocrisies that people saw about Trump was the fact that, you know, he wanted a huge wall and everything. Everything was going to be this big wall. But once you get over it and, you know, work at uh, some big uh, meat processing plant somewhere, he didn't want to bother employers. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's like they, they're sort of, you know, they, they have no obligations of, of citizenship or, or following the law. It was just kind of weird, right? That really made no sense. But I do remember the Gang of Eight, and I remember it was Chuck Schumer. Uh, he was head of the four Democrats. But the most intriguing thing was this. You have to remember, back in 2013, the I think the Democrats held the Senate something like 54 to, I don't know, 47, something like that, or 46. The, the House was held by the Republicans. You may remember after the Tea Party election, the Republicans took over the House. But what was interesting is that this gang of eight got a a final vote in the Senate on this bill, which is kind of what you're just describing, right? It was a sort of, you know, we'll we'll find a way for naturalization. Everyone's already here and we'll have these various ways of of, uh, enforcing the law in the future, which realistically is the only way we're ever going to get to the other side of this, right? We're, we're not going to be going around deporting people in, you know, with with massive trucks, you know, going on in, in neighborhoods and, and, and pulling people out, right? These people are going to have to be naturalized. And, and I think we'll have to have some way of, of being able to enforce uh, the laws, which most Americans want to be enforced. And look, we, we've talked about surveys, of American opinions toward immigration. Most Americans are highly supportive of uh, America's, uh, not only levels of immigration, but America's uh, tradition and heritage as a high immigrant country, right? We remain a high immigrant country. America takes in 
Uh, more immigrants net every year than by far than any other country in the world, even as a share of our population. We're, you know, right up there with, with Canada and Australia. And and most Americans, I think, even in recent years, even slightly more so than the past, are supportive of that. But they also want laws enforced, right? I mean, they uh, they know that we can't accept everyone. And I think there's a strong belief that... Uh, you set a policy, you need to enforce policy. Otherwise, every, you get mobbed, right? A lot of people around the world want to come to America. By the way, this is the other thing that's happening. Is that because it's, enforcement is breaking down on the border, it turns out that this is being recently reported. There are more uh, Syrians, uh, more East Asians and so on, who are actually going to Mexico to get in. I mean, it is a way that you have a high probability of, of, of making it. Drug traffickers, uh, we, t- well, we're going to talk about it later in this episode, right? Uh, this was a record year, absolutely record year for fentanyl deaths. A lot of it's coming across the border because when you can't control the, the sort of the, the human tide, you're also not controlling customs either anymore, right? So all of this is kind of a, a breakdown of what most Americans expect. They expect a lot to be enforced. I guess I'm just, do I sound like an idiot? I mean, isn't this just self-evident? You know, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to be reasonable, logical. Is it, is that possible in America today? You know, Neil, I would add, I, I think a lot of times when, especially from the millennial perspective, when they're maybe not so much on the enforcement is for many of them, they feel a lot of guilt about being born in the U.S. and then someone else, why was someone else born on the other side of the border? So I think that is where other people would be coming from. Well, you know, that's kind of a free-floating guilt about everything, right? Um, oh, yeah. Well, I think millennials have a lot of guilt. Well, yeah. Well, that that's an interesting observation. and But that does not have to be located just with, you know, the fact that they're immigrants and I'm not. I mean, it could be that uh, right. I, I was... Gosh, I mean, just think of all the natural advantages you might have had. I mean, you can always think of someone who's worse off. Does that necessarily make you feel guilty? I guess that means then all of yeah. us should feel guilty. Um, <laughs> I you know, there's, I guess, uh, I don't know. That's 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 an interesting philosophy. Yeah, I'll I'll have to, I'll have to think about that. Uh, so we'll we'll I'll have to I'll have to reflect on that. So the long and short of it is, is this uh, went cross in the Senate, but that's what I wanted to point out. 68 to 32 in the Senate, 14 Republican senators voted for it back in 2013. And who is on? The, the gang of eight. Senators Jeff Flake, well, he's a moderate and he's no longer with us, right? But Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Marco Rubio, Right. Lindsey Graham was one of the leaders of this, uh, what was later called a, um, a travesty, a stab in the back, right? <laughs> I mean, it was an attempt to undermine, you know, all the, all the principles of conservative America. Uh, yes, Lindsey Graham was leading that effort. So the great senator from South Carolina has changed his mind on many things. All right. Let's go around the world. I think it's time. Um we can right. uh, move to this, uh, what we call a contretemps, right? Between China and the United States at this 
meeting. Where where was it located again? It was located. It was in Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage. Okay. All right. And yes. uh, I guess that was a. They thought that was maybe a, a middle ground, you know. So, <laughs> right. All right. So uh, what what exactly happened? Well, most of the news, Neil, has been put on this uh, opening statement of the summit. Now, originally it was a planned that the China side and the U.S. would both have two minutes to make just opening general statements to the press. The U.S. went first, and I would say they gave a pretty aggressive two-minute opener, you know, blasting China on, you know, the whole lot, human rights, Taiwan, Hong Kong, etc. And then it was China's turn, and they proceeded to speak for 18 minutes, blasting the U.S. as being uh, an illiberal country. And I have to say some of the quotes on here, Neil, because they're priceless. So here's what China said. We believe that it is important for the United States to change its own image and to stop advancing its own democracy in the rest of the world. Many people within the United States actually have little confidence in the democracy of the U.S., then they went on to talk about Black Lives Matters and said, we hope that the United States will be do better on their human rights. You know, people are saying this was a very different tone than what China used with Trump. They're now going after Biden saying, look who's calling the kettle black. You're not as liberal as you say you are. Yeah, well, yeah, look, I mean, a lot has changed. I don't think even Trump would have had a format like this, you know, attempting to bring all your top experts together and sort of talk about things, come to an understanding. What what Donald Trump, I think, preferred in these situations is talk to the top guy, cut a good deal. Um, and look, I mean, no one would have talked about any of those. Human rights never would have come up with Trump, Right. Uh, only maybe later in sort of public relations and one of his lower guys would talk about it. Uh, the way kind of uh, people of sort of autocratic personalities talk to each other is often very open, very frank. I often think about what the conversation must have sounded like between Hitler and Stalin, right? Right. They certainly didn't talk about each other's style of governance. They basically just said... I think we uh, I think we could use each other. And uh, here's Poland. Where do we want to divide it? You know, <laughs> that was kind of it. Uh, and and uh, they made a deal. It was done. Uh, Stalin went ahead with it because by that point he didn't have any trust anymore in uh, France or uh, the United Kingdom to do anything uh, at that point. If uh, Poland were invaded and he just thought, well, this is my at least this way I can get a peace and maybe delay Hitler for a little bit. And, and that worked for him, right? He got another, what, another year and a half? I think it's very different. And I think Xi Jinping and, and all of the people under him know that real liberal Democrats uh, can be, it's easy to embarrass them. It's easy to get them to feel defensive, right? And I think that was exactly uh, their strategy, uh, I'm not sure it will work entirely uh, with uh, Biden. I think it was, I think it was, everything was for show. It was hugely well received in social media in China, as you can imagine, right? It's one more way in which we're, you know, throwing off our century of humiliation. You just remember how, how delighted the Chinese social media was about it. Uh, suddenly, you know, you're getting back, you know, you're redeeming us. And it is true, right? There is... Uh, less confidence today in the West for the West, particularly from younger people. 
we talked about that a lot. I mean, my God, how long have we, uh, how many times have we talked about those surveys on, uh, you know, younger people's confidence in democracy? So this is a moment, right? Uh, we've seen these moments before. I, I didn't bring up the 30s by accident because I think that was the last time, the last decade, we saw the whole autocratic paradigm begin to become seem a lot more attractive to a lot of people and begun to make a lot more aggressive claims, right, for legitimacy, that sort of combination of populism and authoritarianism. And we're seeing it again. Look, I think that Biden is pretty clear where he stands. I think he's made very clear uh, that he's going to put his energy mainly in trying to thwart Russia and 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 China and cut a deal with Iran. I mean, right? I mean, I think that's and, yeah. it, and it's sort of just this is how I'm going to save my energy. I figure Iran, you know, we can deal with that other ways. We've got other friends there in the Middle East, and we're gonna we really are going to do what Obama wanted to do. God knows how many years ago, which was actually was to pivot uh, to East Asia and then actually pursue a more effective alliance uh, with allies there. That came up recently, didn't it, as well, with regard to to Taiwan. Uh, not Taiwan, I'm thinking about Hong Kong and, and some of the new rapprochement between uh, Trump and the European Union, right? Right. So what happened there? Is Europe, uh, is the EU beginning to reconsider its new strategic uh, trade agreement with uh, China? Yes. Yeah, so the other day, uh, the US-EU... UK and Canada all imposed joint sanctions on four Chinese officials over the treatment of the Uyghurs. In response, China sanctioned 10 EU diplomats. And so the EU has responded and say, you know, that open market deal we were working on, that's in jeopardy now. And yeah, I see that's the yeah, see right. this is what Biden wants. This is much more important for Biden. Now, the sanctions against these people, it doesn't matter. These are not wealthy kleptocrats who, you know, travel all over the place. These are people no one's they're not going to care about these sanctions. But the symbolic, it changed now the tide of opinion. It's sort of turned EU back now into talking with the United States, which is really what Biden wanted. So I think he got right. what he wanted, right? What else? What else is going on in the uh, in the East Asian front? Well, do we want to move to Taiwan? Yes. Yes, I, I love this story. It's the Freedom Pineapple. <laughs> this February, China had banned the importation of Taiwanese pineapples. And for Taiwan, China's their biggest market for the fruit. And the government acted quickly. They asked uh, the country to domestically buy as many pineapples as they can. And they asked other East Asian countries, could you support us as China's trying to squeeze us economically? And within three days, Neil, in three days, orders for Taiwanese pineapples surpassed the total number of pineapples they shipped to China in 2020. The biggest buyer was Japan. Wow, interesting. F yeah. Freedom, freedom pineapples. That's it. You know, I, uh, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I suddenly want a bit of pineapple right now. In fact, I'm thinking about pineapples. Um, <laughs> Fruit diplomacy. Uh, fruit diplomacy. Yeah, this we last week I think we covered milk tea diplomacy. Now we'll go on to t pineapple diplomacy. Well, let me let me move on to uh, a story about Russia. This is a very curious story. 
and and you know it's one of those stories that actually is related to demography. So no, I'm just joking <laughs> here, but you know we we do stumble onto that topic. Russia is one of the few countries where commercial surrogacy, um, this is you know hiring of women to you know grow your baby, is pretty much unregulated. Uh, the only other countries are Ukraine and Georgia. And the United States as a whole, that's where states kind of make up their own policy. And there are several U.S. states where it's pretty much unregulated. Uh, But because it's inexpensive in Russia, um, it only costs, I think, you can get everything done for a little bit less than $20,000. Lots of Russian women do it for couples abroad. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Russian police stumbled across a clinic that was uh, managing several surrogates who were raising babies for Filipino Filipino women or, you know, Filipinos. And for some reason decided it was a criminal trafficking exercise and put everyone they could catch in jail. I think that's just the default thing that Russians do. You know, let's just put everyone in jail. They took the babies they could find and put them in orphanages. I guess they figured they'd be better off there. Uh, President Putin then later followed up and announced that many or or most of these surrogacies uh, were for gay men. So, <laughs> out of nowhere, right? There's no evidence of that, by the way. He said that they were breaking the law that surrogacies should only be for male-female couples or for single women. Uh, well, it turns out there's no such law in the books, but he insisted if there wasn't, there ought to be. Uh, it's it's also curious. I guess he doesn't worry about gay women. I guess that's and anyway, whatever it is, it's a, a gay male thing, and uh, and it turns out that some Russian gay men with kids ha- uh, promptly fled the country <laughs> over the past week or two. So you know they're suddenly worried these 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 children are going to be taken away from us. Anyway, Putin is announcing that Russia will no longer be a breeding ground for sexual deviance abroad. That's kind of what he's announced. And there are two interesting things about this. Um, one is it's a it's an echo of many of the uh, sort of homophobic and, and culturally traditional changes that were made in last year's uh, constitutional uh, overhaul. This is the one that also, you know, made Putin through kind of a backdoor eligible for leadership for life, right? right? He had to have that. You know, she has it now. I got to do that. So he got that through. But the reason, the way he got it through the uh, Duma was through putting through these, you know, very traditional, you know, populist things, which uh, which were very popular in Russia. It's also a vague echo of something that I, I found really curious, which was a moral panic back around 2000. So this is about 20 years ago. Uh, regarding Westerners adopting Russian babies, uh, I mean, if you if you look, you'll find a lot of uh, Americans who were adopted from Russian orphanages who are now in their, well, who are now in their twenties, right? I mean, they were born in the in the nineteen nineties, today in their twenties. You won't find any, uh, very few Russian adoptees who are younger than that today in America because the Duma passed a law saying Russia is no longer going to allow any adoptions by foreigners. And it was right around that time, by the way, that the fertility in Russia be, uh, rate in Russia began to rise again, right? So this was part of this whole 
sort of moral, um, you know, you might call it a moral panic, right? Suddenly, oh my God, what are we doing? You know, we, we can't even raise our own kids. We, you know, we're giving them away to foreigners. Uh, you know, suddenly, you know, all these Western values are corrupting our, our, our culture. Our, our families are dissolving and, and things did look pretty bad. We, we've talked about that before, right? What was going on with in the, in the days of President Yeltsin when Russia seemed to be falling to pieces. And I think one of the reasons why Russia is so indulgent of Putin uh, and continues to support him is because they always associate him with that turnaround, right? That turnaround when a Russia seemed to be falling to pieces. Now it looks, it certainly looks revived, you know, compared to that. You see uh, cities, particularly Moscow, the interior seems to be being rebuilt. Their, uh, their fertility rate certainly is up. We've certainly covered that. They've put into place this kind of sort of pro-natalism in the law. Now, I'm not sure that any of this is very functional. Certainly, I don't think any of the stuff we're talking about here has anything to do with fertility. But it makes it clear that he stands on the red zone side of this global red zone, blue zone split over traditional family values. And sort of fascinating. Uh, I spent much of my life uh, growing up uh, with them, um, an anti-family, anti, you know, anti-moral, uh, you know, communist society ruling Russia, and to see Russia now standing four square, you know, above all the world in defense of uh, what what we would consider sort of retrograde traditional values is, you know, quite surprising for a lot of us. <laughs> Whatever happened to that new Soviet man and woman, right, who didn't care at all about how they were born biologically, right? They were modern products of science. Well, I guess all that is gone. Uh, so anyway, we have a very different Russia, a much more traditional Russia, which has been reborn. Maybe this is the, uh, the Russia of the czars come back, right? The orthodox Russia, the traditional Russia. Anyway, let's move on. And our last story here is about Turkey. This is uh, fascinating. Uh, anyone who does uh, foreign exchange trading, I'm sure, knows about this. Um, over the weekend, uh, Recep Erdogan fired central bank head Nasi Agbal, and he fired he fired him over the weekend. In response, the Turkish lira fell by uh, nearly 15 percent uh, as soon as markets opened. I'm sure it fell, you know, post market trading, uh, but that's how it opened. The Turkish lira has always had a problem uh, with irregular central bank management, right? Uh, these bouts of um, these kind of, you'd say kind of this, these sudden bouts of, of high inflation and very high interest rates, uh, you know, with these sudden sporadic, you know, wrenching in and, you know, pushing up of interest rates and the whole economy kind of shuddering a little bit to a to a halt. The U.S. dollar um uh, Turkish lira is a favorite play for FX traders doing interest arbitrage, uh, but also a dangerous play unless uh, you know your 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 every move is covered by is is covered by futures. That is to say, you know, covered interest arbitrage. Erdogan, like all populist autocrats, hates central bank heads unless they can keep interest rates low. Right? I mean, that's that's all an autocrat wants a central bank to do. Keep interest rates low. Keep people happy. You know, I, I'd rather tolerate inflation until it gets really bad. And then, of course, it's your fault then, too. Right. So this is a history of a stormy relationship. Uh, they uh, Erdogan did have a 
reasonable, trusted head back in uh, 2019. He was fired in July of 2019 in favor of an Erdogan favorite, Murat Wiesal, who was an Erdogan puppet. And uh, he had very poor performance despite a falling U.S. dollar, which should have helped him, in part because the central bank spent billions trying to defend uh, the the overvalued Turkish lira. It made no sense at all, but they kept on spending billions and billions of billions until they finally had to call Enkel, right? It made no sense at all. So we saw, and I think partly because of that, it was blamed on him. It may not have been his fault, but he was replaced by Agbal last November, who has performed very well, despite the fact, of course, that the dollar hasn't uh, fallen as much and U.S. interest rates are going uh, back up. But there was just one problem. There was this guy, Berat Albayrak, uh, who's Erdogan's son-in-law, thought that the central bank position was going to him. <laughs> and he had been finance minister, and he immediately resigned his post. So apparently he's been plotting his revenge. And as soon as Agbal hiked interest rates again, this was last week because inflation was heating up. That's apparently when Erdogan decided to boot him out. Um, so there we are. Uh, Agbal is replaced by this new guy, Sahap Kavkoglu, Kavkoglu, and he's another AKP party guy. He's a, pol- a political columnist. He's you know he's big with the party. Uh, and there you have it. Uh, the Turkish currency again in disarray. Uh, it's fun for traders, you know. I mean, you have to say if you're an FX trader uh, and you're ever kind of going bare on that trade, um, uh, you know, as leveraged as these guys are, uh, that's um, you know, that's not for wimps. <laughs> Anything can happen. Anything can happen with the uh, with the with the uh, U.S. dollar uh, Turkish lira exchange rate. So there we go for that. Well, shall we move on? Let's move on to a couple of Newswire stories. The first one is uh, is sort of interesting. This is more evidence coming in confirming the 2020 birth decline. I think we've reported on that before. Uh, this was a really interesting study done by CBS of all people media outlets. Uh, But they actually went in, took a look at the annual data of 32 U.S. states, uh, taking a look either at their, you know, the state estimates or the state, you know, final published numbers and found that overall they're down 4.4 percent in 2020 compared to the year before. And nearly all of the states reporting uh, reported drops in births. So this is about on par with something we reported on earlier, which is an overall decline. I think we we suggested the overall decline might be something more in the range of 5.2% overall, uh, you know, taking a look at some of those five large states. And as as expected, we saw some decline earlier in the year, and then obviously very steep declines as you move into December. And now, of course, we're beginning to get data from a lot of states, you know, in, in January, February. I think it's it's worth saying that that as we move into February, January, uh, we're seeing declines. Hard to say initially, particularly in California, because the data, you know, is not really final, right? It's still kind of flowing in. But right, I think it it's fair to s- it. yeah, they keep updating. I I think it's fair to say that we're going to see something at or maybe just below a ten percent decline. You know, we're going to be keeping an eye out for full year and December data from New York and Texas. 
uh, that makes up, you know, along with along with California, that makes up uh, what that's that's easily probably between a quarter and a third of the U.S. population. You know, and then then we'll then we'll kind of see what happens. But I, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable about some of our early early estimates there. Okay, let's move on to um, a really tragic story. This is uh, rising overdose deaths in the U.S., uh, which have surged during the pandemic. This is particularly due to opioids, I think, uh, accounting for about 73% of all deaths today. Last summer, I noted that after a brief reprieve in 2018, opioid overdose deaths had already begun rising again throughout the later part of 2019 and earlier, early 2020. And, and I had been, you know, talking about, I was drawing attention to the fact that, that, that it seemed to have peaked in late 2017, plateauing, and actually seemed to be going down through much of uh, uh, 2018 into 2019. Well, that changed late in 2019. And the early indicators are that that has really started ramping up into 2020. Now, their data, you know, aren't all that up to date. I think right now they're up to about June of uh, 2020, but but it look it looks it looks very bad so far. It looks like we're seeing the highest number of drug overdose deaths ever recorded in a single year on a rolling 12-month basis. Uh, drug overdoses killed nearly 84,000 Americans from August 2019 to July 2020. So yeah, we have it going up to July. That's 23 more, 23 percent more than in the 12-month period ending a year earlier. As I said, opioids were accounting for uh, 73 percent of these deaths, about 61,000. Uh, and as increasingly the case, we're not talking about prescription drugs at all. We're not. We're not even talking even about heroin. We're talking about uh, synthetic opioids, particularly um, fentanyl, that continues to. Uh, dominate. Uh, you still have uh, other drugs involved, um, psychostimulants such as amphetamine and you know a bunch of other things. But that's no longer really uh, where most of the action is. Interestingly, fentanyl, which uh, used to be concentrated east of the Mississippi, is now is now everywhere. Uh, it's nearly every everything that's happening. All the deaths, uh, synthetic opioid deaths. Over the past year, the, the largest increases have been in the Western states. Uh, ER visits for drug overdoses has increased. Uh, everything related to overdose deaths, even though ER visits overall have declined because no one wanted to go to the ER, uh, that's not true for, for opioid crises. What's driving the rise? Um, as you can probably guess, it's the growing isolation, dislocation, stress, maybe even boredom that has accompanied the pandemic. Uh, we've often reported on this, all indicators of, of emotional distress levels remain elevated. I think we've done a number of pieces on that, right? And it's particularly true for younger people. Although opioid deaths occur, it's an equal opportunity killer. I mean, it goes all the way up now to people who are in you know, midlife, late midlife. We're talking about early wave Xers, uh, all of them. In-person social services have been harder to access. I think that's been part of it. Uh, many Americans who need counseling are unable or unwilling to seek it because of COVID-19. And um, 
In fact, there's an interesting theory that some of the rising death toll may be to, due to intentional overdosing, right? Which is, you know, it actually should be reported as suicide if we knew it, but often we don't know the intentions, right? right. So we, we strongly suspect as well, I might add, that the suicide rate has also risen over the past year. So we'll, we'll keep checking on that. This is part of, um, uh, I should say, a highly turbulent and mixed record on mortality, right? Obviously, you have enormously greater mortality on the order of, you know, 450,000 deaths from COVID-19 in, uh, in, in calendar year 2020. We also had, you know, overdose deaths. We're talking about maybe an increase of 13,000. Motor vehicle accidents were up. I think even we talked about this last last time, right? Um, uh, homicides is another thing. Why that went up is is another interesting puzzle. Uh, and at the same at the same time, um, obviously certain other things went down, uh, including you know all of the other respiratory infections, most notably flu. And flu is such a terrible killer every year uh, that may have more compensated with all the rest in terms of number. Uh, but maybe not just in terms of, you know, damage. So I don't know. I hate to end it on such a a downer piece. But, you know, look, morbidity, uh, mortality, fertility, migration, just doing my job as a demographer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger. That's right. Don't shoot the messenger. I even tell people that, you know, for for anyone who really just wants to talk about demography, you know, all all that classic... uh, births, deaths, and, and, and a change of location, uh, it's, you know, normally in most years, it's about as exciting as watching paint dry, you know, or maybe, you know, it, you know, looking at a glacier, you know, slide very slowly down some, some alpine ravine. This year is different, right? I mean, this year you have real news going on. Um, right. And so that makes it a little bit, a uh, little bit extraordinary, a little bit exciting, a little bit different. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, As always, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com, or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at How Generation. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.